welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This week is a very special episode for us because it's our first ever joint episode. We've teamed up with the Science, Technology and International Relations, or STAIR as it's known, uh, section of ISA, that's the International Studies Association of which I'm a member. And uh, that is the academic organization that uh, speaks to, caters to the um, academic networking needs uh, of uh, a number of scholars in the United States and around the world who are interested in world politics, globalization, um, many members of that organization are listeners to that show, even though that they are not the only listeners to this show. Uh, but the reason we wanted to link up with Stare uh, for this episode is uh, that we're trying to kick off here a series of collaborations on the politics of, of science and technology and art in globalization. So to that end, uh, joining me today is my co-host in this venture, Stephanie Parazone, who recently got her PhD in international relations and political science at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, also known as IHEID. Now, Stephanie, uh, let me start just by uh, thanking you for joining me today and for helping me out with this venture. You're my first ever co-host. Can I please invite you to say a little bit about who you are and what your research interests are? Sure. Um, hi, Nicholas. Uh, I should thank you as well for co-hosting uh, this first podcast of mine, uh, especially as a comms officer of STAIR. Uh, so thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, so who am I? Uh, like, I like you said, I just uh, finished my PhD last year, which I defended in September 2018. Um, most of my PhD was to make this simple on the microprocesses of state formation in conflict and post-conflict environments, and specifically in uh, post-colonial African societies. And I did a lot of field work to do that in the Democratic Republic uh, of Congo in three different cities, which were Kinshasa, the capital city, Lubumbashi, and Goma to the east, uh, the eastern parts of the country. So I continue this agenda today, uh, mainly because I want to take further, um, you know, all the new scholarship that comes out in state theorizing and IR um, and urban studies and critical geography, um, which I think would be an endeavor that would, it's two disciplines that can speak to each other quite a bit. And so developing this agenda, I have, methodologically speaking, worked a lot on qualitative research methods and I did quite a bit of ethnographic research in the Congo. So I did this by, you know, interviewing people, of course, open-ended interviews. I followed people around in the city, in the streets, in their homes. Uh, I took a lot of, you know, uh, notes as uh, uh, like not participant observation, but observation in itself. And I also created throughout my entire dissertation, dissertation a kind of iconography of the state, which very simply speaking, I simply used my iPhone and I took, I took pictures of uh, my informants, 
which were either ordinary residents of those cities, you know, students, uh, coffee owners, musicians, artists, uh, health workers, and state agents at the lowest levels of the administrative um, hierarchy. So it could have been uh, neighborhood chiefs, uh, low-level police officers, uh, urban planners, and the like. And that was very interesting because, of course, I always uh, requested consent before taking those pictures. There's a lot of ethical issues that can arise from this. But yeah, but so what was most interesting in this was um, that I did not always take those pictures myself, which means some of my informants took pictures of me and, you know, in, in, in a relationship that became uh, one of trust, of course, when you interview people several times around, etc. But also some of them directed me how to take those pictures. And so it's basically elicitation. And that was quite interesting because pictures then don't become just illustrations of my work, but the processes behind taking those pictures, the practices are actually generating data, which I thought was fascinating. And so that drove my interest in the more visual art slash aesthetic uh, parts of Stare specifically. Uh, so listen, a minute ago, you just mentioned uh, that you were the comms officer of Stare. So that's the communications officer, right? So yes, apologies, that was not clear. <laughs> how, so so how did you come to Stare, and, and can you tell us a little bit about Stare? And um, as comms officer, what are your goals with this uh, with this podcast thing? Right. So um, so yeah. So my election as the communications officer is fairly recent. Uh, that was last ISA, uh, February, I believe, March. March 2019. And this happens because I have been acquainted with STAIR before, of course, mainly through peers of mine who knew about my work and this iconography and visual methods I was talking about and the material side of, you know, of, of my research. And they suggested a while ago that I, um, that I'd become a member at large at some point, which I did this year. And then it turned out that I finally decided to campaign for communications officer and I was elected. And my main goals, I think, is for STAIR in general to gain more members, generally speaking, uh, mainly across various disciplines and not just IR. I think that would be most interesting, especially that STAIR aims to gather various disciplines and subdisciplines together. And with this podcast, uh, well, Professor Yender was our this year's uh, distinguished scholar. And I think it's an excellent way to start this first podcast uh, at STAIR in collaboration with yours to introduce her work precisely because she's been very active and I would say innovative in that specific, uh, in that specific field. And I think people can learn a lot about what she's doing, especially in her own words that are not just academic uh, jargon in right. published articles. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, for listeners at home, they may be interested to know that we, uh, we, 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 we got Anna 
Leander on the line when she was uh, sitting outside in what seemed like a, a lovely sort of coastal area, I think in Italy. So you're going to get all this lovely um, ambient noise, uh, dogs barking, uh, Italian yes. church bells chiming in the distance. Uh, so I, I think you're going to get a lovely context uh, for, the, for the interview as well as everything else. But, yeah. Uh, Ste <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stephanie, uh, where can people find out more about Stare and uh, especially this podcast if they're going to be interested to check yes. it out? So Stare has a, a website that is up and running. Um, we did uh, make a few changes on the website itself, so it's more um, user-friendly. Uh, and there is now a specific button uh, and page for a podcast. So this is where we will be right. posting the podcasts. Of course, uh, I will make sure that people know about that as much as possible. Meaning right. advertising for it through our Google group that people can uh, yeah. ask to be part of by sending us an yeah. email, which uh, the contact of which can be uh, found on the STAIR website as well, if anybody is interested yeah. in checking that and out. And also this Twitter, right? There's a STAIR exactly. Twitter that people can and look up. Yep. Yeah, then there's the social media platforms, uh, mainly Twitter is the most active as the, at this point because we have about 1,500 followers, which is quite a bit. Excellent. That's and, huge. Yeah, it's it's really nice. And we have uh, the Facebook group, which is a little uh, smaller, simply because mm -hmm. a lot of people are not uh, on Facebook and more on Twitter. But it mm -hmm. is active uh, as well. And so you will find all sorts of information, either articles that are academic or uh, magazine articles that have something to do uh, with stare or uh, mm -hmm. exhibitions events that are that could be interesting uh, and of course all sorts of events and calls for conferences best uh, book and paper awards by the way the deadline is september 20th for that uh, all right get your skates out folks you heard exactly. it here no excuses <laughs> no excuses <laughs> And yeah, so the, these are the main platforms that you, that anyone interested in STAIR might find information. And then, of course, there is the, the webpage of ISA itself uh, that is uh, specifically dedicated to STAIR, where all uh, these links are also available. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for introducing STAIR to the listeners. Um, again, this is our first sort of joint episode. Hopefully, we'll do a, another couple of these it would be really nice to have you back on and, and help us to interview more uh, people in the future but eventually uh listeners are going to be able to check out the stare podcast it's coming as its own show uh, and it's going to be on the uh, stare wordpress blog uh, the links for that will be in the show notes for this episode and we'll also put a link to the twitter on there as well as links yeah, to a, a number of the articles um from Anna Leander, who's going to be our guest joining us in just a moment. So let's just talk a little bit about Anna. Anna Leander is, as Stephanie mentioned just a minute ago, uh, the winner of the 2018 STAIR uh, Section Distinguished Scholar Award. Uh, Leander is a professor of international relations at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Uh, that's the same place that Stephanie was getting her PhD yes. uh, with part-time positions at the uh, Copenhagen Business School. And I think the thing that listeners to this show are going to be interested in is the way she sort of um, takes a focus on um, what we might call the politics of commercialization uh, Sometimes mm -hmm. we uh, on, discuss this on this program 
under the broad rubric of uh, neoliberalism or late capitalism. I think um, Anna Leander definitely has an interest in those sorts of dynamics, but specifically applying them to issues of military and security governance. So as it says on her bio, she's focused on the material politics of commercial security technologies. And of course, she brings in a lot of very funky theoretical stuff here that listeners to the show will be no stranger to, such as aesthetics and affective dimensions. Stephanie, just before we get going here, what what do you think um, you were on the lookout for in this interview? Uh, what, what were you kind of keen to kind of get to with Anna? Yes, um... She is such a prominent scholar in the field that pretty much anything she would say would be of interest to me and hopefully mm-hmm. to the listeners as well. But I think yeah. uh, what, I, what I'm really looking for here is to hear her talk first, I think, uh, of her reinterpretation and theoretical usage of, uh, of Bourdieu's work. I think... Pierre Bourdieu, uh, yeah, yes, who, who admittedly is not someone we've talked a lot about a lot on this show. I mean, that could be a topic for a future episode just to drill down on Bourdieu because, uh, oh, yes, you know, he, he's not a name that's come up on this show very often, I must say. Absolutely. And, and, and Anna knows uh, so much about the entirety of his work and she's really able to, uh, to put his various um, uh, publications and books in mm-hmm. dialogue, which, which I think is really interesting. Maybe we, we could... Uh, organize this with Anna again and have a, a, a special special podcast. A second thing, yeah, absolutely. A second thing that I find fascinating in her work is um, this criticality that she's able to bring in in this, you know, commercialization of, of uh-huh. um, security and and how this links back to not just. The, the state and state apparatus, which is, as I said earlier, something that I'm particularly interested in, but also in our everyday life as citizens mm-hmm. of, of uh, Western states or non-Western states and everywhere in the world, especially today. And so this brings me to the third point I find particularly mm-hmm. compelling, um, which he shares with a few other <clears throat> scholars in IR as well, is this everyday uh, components of her theorizing and using ethnography and and theorizing the everyday as not just an analytical lens on IR uh, as as politics and theory, but as a critique of it is is really bold and really interesting. And and I hope listeners will manage to get a grasp of this. And when she does mention a few of her peers or books or authors that she particularly like, I would really encourage people to look up for them. Great. Uh, Well, as I say, we'll put some links to those um, pieces uh, in the show notes so that uh, if people are interested, they can check out the Occupy IR Theory blog or they can check out the show notes to this episode and uh, carry themselves on to further research if they wish. Right. Without any further ado, we've been yakking enough. Let's uh, let's get on with our interview here. Um, Listeners at home, uh, you're about to hear an interview with Anna Leanne winner of this year's Stare Award. Uh, hope you enjoy the show. Well, thanks for joining us, Anna Leander. Uh, first of all, let us congratulate you. You were recognized in 2018 as the Science, Technology and Art in International Relations, or STARE, Distinguished Scholar. 
So for the listener who might not be familiar with your work, maybe we can just start the conversation today by inviting you to reflect um, briefly on the major themes of your work, your career, and perhaps more importantly, I wonder if we could just ask you about the impact of your engagement with science and technology studies on your identity as an IR theorist. What does it mean to you as an IR theorist to be engaged in this kind of work? And to what extent would you say your engagement with this discipline of science and technology studies uh, has inflected your attitude towards the discipline? Hmm. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, so the I, I usually say that I do two kinds of things, that I'm interested in developing ethnographic kind of work uh, in IR, uh, and that I've done so for the very longest time now uh, in working on commercial security. Uh, as a sort of empirical field. Um, and the background to that is that I had an interest in area studies originally. So I was working on Turkey, uh, and I actually wrote my dissertation about the state in Turkey. Uh, and therefore, from very early on, I was interested in uh, basically anti-disciplinary work, as most area studies tends to be. Um, and so on one level, to get to the question about the identity and, uh, you know, my identity as an IR scholar and uh, transformation, um, uh, what STS has meant in terms of transforming that identity. Um, I think on, on one level, it's not changed very much at all. Uh, but on the other, on another level, it's changed quite a lot of things. So just mm -hmm. in terms of uh, uh, not changed anything at all, I think one of the things I really like uh, about uh, STS and the, the reason for starting to work with it was that uh, it did a lot of uh, very uh, interesting uh, ethnographic work and had quite a lot of interesting anti-disciplinary work in many ways. I, uh, I really enjoyed meeting STS and, uh, uh, on that level. And so that was just like a continuation of a lot of the work that I had been doing before, but in a, sl a sort of slightly different focus. And that's where the big changes come in. So what it really did change was, of course, the interest in uh, tending more seriously to the uh, materiality side of things and the technology side of things, which is, of course, core to uh, STS. Uh, and I started doing that quite early, actually, when I moved to CBS, uh, the Copenhagen Business School, and that was 2026, uh, so 2006. Uh, I basically, there was there was a whole subculture. There were a lot of, our research director is, was a prominent figure in STS, Alan Irvin. And so, of course, we had a lot of STS people passing through, and everyone had STS projects. CBS organized one of the uh, the 4S uh, conferences. Um, uh, and so basically from then on, I took quite a lot of interest, sort of pulled into it and into mm. that way of thinking and working. Uh, and that opened up all kinds of new interesting agendas, I think. So on the one hand, you know, on one level, I don't think it didn't really change much in my relation to IR because I'd been there for quite a long time right. in this, uh, you know, thinking of IR as an 
uh, inter- anti-disciplinary space, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, it opened up a host of new questions and new ways of doing things and so on. And I think that's quite normal for or normal. I think most people's career hopefully go through these things that you actually don't work forever on exactly the same thing, but that you actually move on and uh, engage new kinds of topics and things. Um, yeah, Anna, you you mentioned you know that you started to to get an, an interest in STS quite early on, and I was thinking about you know you mentioned your PhD dissertation, and I was wondering if this interest in blending you know STS and IR theory originated uh, while you were working on the state in Turkey? And if so, how? And if not, when did this really happen then? No, it didn't happen when I was writing. I could have maybe, or maybe it depends on how, you know, at the time, uh, STS was big elsewhere, but not in my world and certainly not in uh, uh, in the kind of world I was working in then. So I was very interested uh, in a number of things, but... Um, basically in the neoliberalization of the state and the ethnographies of that. And I worked through companies and actually through technologies already then. So I was quite interested in all the discussions about knowledge transfers and the politics of the knowledge transfers. Uh, And we're talking like the early 90s here, right? Uh, But I didn't know, like I didn't know any of the scholars that are STS scholars at the time. So the reference points were like Alice Anston and uh, uh, Bob Wade and uh, Walden Bellow and things like that. So basically, uh, if you like, um, what later became commodity chain kind of things, those kinds of arguments. And of course, you could probably frame those as STS, but I think it would be the wildest exaggeration to suggest that I was doing that. I wasn't. Um, so uh, it really did start when I moved to CBS, uh, but in in a sense, you could say it was very easy for me to see the link. So it wasn't like I had to make a huge effort uh, to go there. It was, but it's a different. There are different takes on the issues, and of course, the um, because I was interested in the transformations of the state and actually the micro politics of that. Uh, I was really. Um, looking into something that I think STS moved into, but maybe a little bit later. Like now it's very big in STS, but I'm actually not so sure that it was in the beginning because it was much more centered on um, basically the lab and uh, scientific development and things like that. And their interest in uh, the developing world came rather later. All right. So if I pedal back a little bit on why we're here today and which has to do with the stairs section, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The stairs section in ISA is quite a new creation. And questions of science and technology in IR, on the other hand, are not really new as you just discussed. So as an IR theorist working on science and technology issues for most of your career, can you comment for us a little bit on the genealogies of science and technology studies in the discipline? And what does it mean to you to see the discipline starting to take these issues a lot more seriously today? Well, so I'm very happy about it, of course, because uh, as I just sort of tried to say, I've been working there for a long time. And I think in terms of thinking how it moved into how science and technology studies moved into IR, I think there was quite a lot of interesting uh, materialist and new materialist work going on for uh, quite a long time. Actually, I think um, 
in the development studies in the IPE world, uh, it started, I think, uh, back in the 70s or something like that. But then I think mm -hmm. the feminists were really important in bringing in an interest uh, in materialism in various ways. And uh, I think people were sort of bringing in these ideas uh, from quite early on. So one of the first things I had to do when I moved to uh, CBS was to take over a course of one of my colleagues who was teaching William Walters uh, article from uh, whatever it is, 2000 or something like that, about the early 2000s on uh, how to work with STS uh, in the uh, in the EU. So it was there, but it was also there, as I said, through the work uh, of uh, you know anyone, the gender studies people who'd taken up Karen Barad and Donna Haraway and uh, Catherine Hales and things like that. So it was there, and then I think sometime. I, then it became really uh, a lot of young people actually took it up. And, you know, when people and it, it became a turn, the STS turn or the new materialist turn, which was finally came to be sort of monopolized by STS, where I think it was actually quite a much broader debate uh, that was going on. And they sort of picked up one part of it. And I I and thought it was a good idea. So I'm thinking like Pierre Schouten and Christian Buger and Maximilian Meyer or Rocco Bellanova who sort of picked up STS and really were driving the agenda and set up the section. I signed the setting up of the section, although of course I thought it was already quite strongly there in the IPS, but I was really happy about um, this being uh, taken further. Uh, and. Uh, but of course, there's always this ambiguity about turns and turps uh, that hang together somehow. Um, it's good that they're there because they direct attention to issues and they put words on them and it becomes easier to see them uh, both inside but also flagging towards the outside that this is actually also going on in our discipline in IR. So I thought there was a lot of sort of interesting two-way communications also with people coming into IR. So that would, like William, I think is a good example of that, but uh, Wendy Larner as well. And, um, you know, we had Sheila Yasanov uh, come to the ISA and things like that. So I, I was very positive uh, about uh, about that development. Uh, and it sort of fed into the general view I have on the discipline. So maybe, I don't know if that's a genealogy at all. Actually, I'm not sure it is, but never mind. It's sort of a, how I see the development of this uh, and of the section as such. And I, th I was very happy about that coming about because it sort of reinforces the view of IR as an open space and a place where you can do interesting work. And that was always what I valued the most about IR. So if one thinks about IR a little bit as being torn between people who sort of wanted to specialize the DS, a very sort of close discipline, and maybe Kenneth Waltz, you know, the fear of enlarging IR and spreading out. And I think it's been going on forever in IR history. Um, so those kind of and who sort of try to want an IR theory proper for only IR and no one else. I've been more of the persuasion that as any theory, it's very good if it's open and speaks to other things and brings in and so on. So as I see the STS into IR, um, but also the stare more largely, so um, also the aesthetic and... Um, uh, basically interest in arts and IR uh, were are part of the sort of ongoing and necessary 
conversations uh, that I think a discipline should have so that you sort of branch out and you don't close down, you don't police the borders, but you constantly push them and test them or something like that. Well, that maybe is a good uh, moment for me to jump in and sort of try to uh, direct the conversation towards the topic of your theoretical influences and, and the voices that have helped you uh, shape your work um, as you've become this scholar at the intersection of IR and science and technology studies. And, um, you know, reading your work, it seems that there's kind of two consistent themes that are in interplay uh, all the time. Uh, one is the role of symbolic power. And of course, the way that helps shape, reproduce, if you will, systems of, of violence, political violence. But then the second uh, theme, I think that's there constantly, is the value of reflexivity, the political value of reflexivity uh, in the way that it helps us um, become aware of the need for resistance and then also shapes the direction of our resistance. So, so a figure that seems to come up for you uh, in the sort of space between those two themes is Bourdieu, um, who you quote in one of your pieces as follows. Uh, when you say that the language of authority never governs without the collaboration of those it governs, without the help of the social mechanisms capable of producing this complicity based on the misrecognition, which is the basis of all authority. So uh, you're obviously getting from this idea of thinking differently to actually changing the order of things is is not a straightforward line. But can you say a little more about your thoughts, your, your perceptions of how theory uh, can address symbolic power, political violence, and, and resistance. Yeah, and I, I actually, so Nick, I really appreciate that you picked it up because you're absolutely right. It's very central. Actually, I hadn't thought of it in the terms you put it. Um, and... Um, and so maybe sort of starting like this, I maybe I think that uh, you know on the one hand it's uh, it's extremely uh, irritating the not on the one hand it is very <laughs> irritating the way that um, uh, critique and imagination uh, yeah. are often pitted against each other uh, in the contemporary debate uh, and. Um, that domination is sort of squared into becoming something very, uh, in a study of domination and understanding of symbolic violence and so on, uh, squared into becoming something ultimately rather negative and conservative. Right. Uh, whereas uh, imagination stands for all the positive potential of change and so on. And of course, this retakes the disagreement uh, between uh, the Bourdieusian and the Latourians. Um, and I tend to think that that view is largely misleading. You really, you really need both. Like you actually need an understanding of symbolic violence to be able to imagine things. Uh, and at the same time, of course, you can't be stuck in only thinking negatively about how everything is pulling you down. So 
I think of it very, the relationship, I think it's actually, you, you really need to balance. It's a very difficult kind of a balance. Maybe one can't do both at the same time constant or something like you can't do everything at once as usual, but you really uh, need uh, both of them. And I actually think that if you think about it, the most YSTS people actually also think about the domination of symbolic violence and so on in their own terms, like they wouldn't do the Bordurian uh, take on it, obviously. They disagree widely with it, but right. uh, it, but actually they also, of course, think about the politics uh, in the sense of, you know, what can be said or not, and so on. The tour's overarching project, after all, is to uh, do away with the modern split, which, you know, talk about the uh, uh, symbolic violence uh, of enormous proportions. And, and this is really what runs through all his work or Isabel Stenger's, uh, uh, who's really interested in, she keeps quoting uh, Whitehead for his emphasis on negation and so on. So I, I think this is a very, very important part of their work, just as inversely for Bourdieu, of course, uh, one of the main reasons for studying uh, domination and symbolic violence and so on is to be able to create a, a space for imagination and for sort of redefining. Uh, and I think uh, I think the debate has actually, you know, sometimes debates become some, about flag waving and taking sides in not so fruitful right. way. Uh, but I think the actual discussion about it and people who work with it has gone quite far. And I'm, I really like uh, an anthropologist, uh, Gaston Hage. I don't know if you're familiar with his. Okay. And anyway, he's worked. A he works on two visions of anthropology. So he's not an IR scholar, but I quite like the ideas. And uh, where he sort of makes a distinction, of course, as an anthropologist, uh, the imagination and the positive side is all with anthropology, and the domination is with sociology. But he keeps insisting on the import of linking the two and also bringing it into uh, bringing Bourdieu into thinking about it. And I think he does it very well. And he sort of points, he has a very nice way of uh, uh, coining um, the, the idea of thinking politics differently. So he talks about it in terms of ultra politics. Uh, so thinking about um, different political agendas like basically and opening up space for that uh, and links uh, domination to that and is very sort of careful with not falling into this either or uh, version of thing but sticking to an and um uh, and i think that's that i very much share that awesome all right um, so returning a little bit on, you know, about symbolic and political violence that you were mentioning earlier, um, parts of your work has focused um, on the relations between commercial security and political practices. And would you be able to expand a bit on the importance of this relationship between the commercial and the technological in your work in relation to recent security developments? So, for instance, why is the commercial so centrally important to understanding security technology dynamics at the moment? And methodologically speaking, how should we study these dynamics? Uh, well, in terms of uh, being important, I think it's part of the, the way that um, politics in general has become, and actually 
not only politics, the way we think about life has become thoroughly commercialized. Uh, and so for a very long time, I've been interested actually in the way that companies do politics. So this was part of my PhD interest. And I suppose one, to some extent, you know, things remain with you. So I was interested not in comp how companies were influencing what someone else was doing, but how what they were doing was actually politics. And this has stuck with me. And I think it's become ever more important as also the public has started behaving as a company. Uh, so also the state is thoroughly commercialized in its doings. And what does that, in terms of thinking security, that means that what I would tend to term commercial dynamics or commercial logics are part of making the security politics. And I think for all kinds of reasons that it would take me forever to go into, but I would, those I actually have written quite a bit about, for all kinds of reasons, historically, we've ended up with uh, categories that make it very difficult to study how commercial logics play into something political, and especially security politics, because that's been the purview of the state, the very definition, the underlying most thinkings about the state, the state monopoly and its use of force, at least as an aspiration, has been uh, extremely central. So, so when you say, so why is that important? So basically what I'm saying is that to think about security politics, we actually need to have the commercial logics in there. Uh, so to understand anything about contemporary security politics, we need to think the commercial as well. And empirically, so we could think that, like, I think it's obvious to everyone if we take something like cybersecurity or something like that where it's easy. But I think the commercialization of um, management of security generally, also within the state, uh, has gone really, really far. And it's not only in the U.S. and the U.K. where it's usually thought, it's everywhere. So enormous portions of security are managed according to commercial logic. So understanding those logics really is, as far as I'm concerned, really important and it has become ever more so since I started this. I, and um, to the point where I recently wrote something where I made an argument about how the fact that uh, there's been a huge change. So where I think only 10 years ago or something like that, the general consensus was that um, you know, ultimately the state had a monopoly on the use of force. I don't think that's true anymore. I think uh, now the authority lies with professional networks that are... Uh, private and public at the same time. Uh, and so now it's not even an aspirational thing. And I so and I've worked on that in theory. And so you asked methodologically, so of course you can work on these things uh, uh, in very many different ways. Uh, my preference has always tended to be uh, ethnographically, but uh, there will be other ways of course of doing that as well. But that's the that's the general idea uh, of how I think about this. Maybe I can jump in there and uh, sort of invite you to talk about a, a, some of the specifics on that because um, I, I'm really taken with this idea of the uh, legitimate monopoly of violence of the state, so-called, uh, which is, of course is such a, a you know massive aspect of the way we imagine international relations to work um, that this has been displaced effectively. So, so. 
maybe let's stay with that a minute and the, these commercial dynamics and also the way I think that in your work uh, you seem also to be curious about neoliberalism, the way it's created, ad hoc tendencies in the way we see and in the way we govern security. And of course, one central aspect of that is the rise of the private military contractor, the PMC. So um, you've written a lot about PMCs and uh You've written a lot about our efforts to maintain accountability for these firms and how this decline, uh, ostensible decline of the monopoly of legitimate violence of the state has led to a certain kind of inconsequentialism in the way we seek accountability from these firms. So maybe I can just ask you to talk a little bit more about that uh, particular instance of symbolic power, um, our commitment to the idea of an autonomous sovereign state and how it relates to our effort to regulate security. Mm. Um, well, so just, so it's, I think it's super, it's very, very central as well to a lot of the work that I do. But maybe sort of one way of putting this is I've come to think that, um, uh, that we've seen a sort of really a move uh, so that um, there's been a change over the last 10 years from, uh, or even, yeah, maybe starting like the 70s or something like that, late 70s, um, a, a really strong move away from uh, this being ad hoc tendency to this being extremely central. So the idea that we govern things through markets has become extremely central in most public administrations as well. Right. So efficiency criteria, uh, the idea uh, of a market uh, or quasi-market, because of course in a lot of public uh, security situations, it's not it's not about the sort of open market, an ideal type or something. It's a bureaucratically, artificially created uh, market that's at work. But anyway, um, where it's used, so we moved from this being an ad to ad hocism or something like that. Like you refer to something I wrote ten years ago in Security right. Dialogue, um, mm-hmm. uh, and the, at that point I really thought it, what was happening was that people would constantly have, on the one hand, in their mind, uh, bureaucratically controlled use of force and so on, but then consists yeah. always make exceptions for various reasons that I go into for markets. So, and now I think we've come so far that you no longer, that inconsequentialism or something like that is no longer needed because it's quite fine uh, now in most countries to justify things with reference to market logic. So it's much less inconsequential than it used to be. I and I, this amazes me. It, this amazes me. And it's in the state. So you said, you know, the reference to a sovereign state. I've actually also written about how I think this isn't somehow undermining sovereignty or against the state or the state disappearing. It's a transformation uh, of the way that states work uh, from within, like a really far-reaching transformation that actually in some paradoxical ways strengthens sovereignty. Like the, the institution of sovereignty. If you separate the idea of sovereignty and the idea of statehood from the state monopoly on the legitimate use of force, uh, I think you're much better off in, in terms of thinking about this. And of course, people have done this for a long time in various ways, but I really think we've become some. Can you, are the church bells <laughs> For whom the bells right. toll. <laughs> yeah, anyway. 
Sorry for that. You might have to cut that. Uh, no um, problem. It, it, it adds it adds a certain um, charm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the yeah Italian pilgrimage city or something like that. But, Very good. Mm. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm good. No, it was really interesting what Anna was saying yeah. about uh, you know how uh, how these tendencies do not necessarily encroach on state sovereignty and state authority. It makes me think of, uh, you know, the, the works of uh, Beatrice Ibu, who worked a lot on uh, on privatization of bureaucracies uh, in, in Africa and elsewhere. And she does talk about that notion of the redeploiement de l'État instead of its, you know, disappearance or mere privatization. It was quite interesting. Yeah, and she has a lot of interest, like the, the way she argues uh, that the neoliberalization actually goes together with a form of extension of bureaucracies, like that's her core exactly. point. She's actually not, I always think that she doesn't make enough of the market. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, which is funny because in her original work on Tunisia, uh, yeah. the, her analysis of the uh, uh, whatever the Tunisian uh, authoritarianism as working through a micropolitics that was essentially economic. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of it, but in the book on the neoliberalization, uh, well, so, the bureaucratic neoliberalization is disappearing entirely. Yeah, and then the book true. on domination is even more. And now she's working on Weber, where it's completely gone, unfortunately. Oh. But anyway, yes, I completely, Beatrice is great. No, so, so what changed? How did this ad hoc tendency shift into a sort of a, a less inconsequentialist mode of governance? I'm just curious if you could sort of go back over that. Well, how did it shift? So I think what shifted is, you know, people, when I spoke to people and when I were, you were reading documents, people would shift between reference points that assumed a sort of bureaucratic logic at work, reference points that placed authority in professional market-based networks. And they would do it like almost in a sentence. And it would amaze me because I actually think it's pretty different things. It's not the same. And what's happened now is that the compulsory reference has switched so that they no, they no longer need to be inconsequential, so to speak. So that now it's just fine to refer to uh, the way that a professional network of commercial and state actors have judged something. And that's uh, that's enough. That's authoritative enough. And I actually think I have a mo my, so I wrote an article about how the Norwegian I found fascinating because that's the first sort of really formal thing that does this, and it's in Norway, so that's in its own right, you know, not exactly, it's not the UK, it's not the US, it's mm -hmm. Norway. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a court case where Stephen Patrick Dennis, who was a Canadian uh, aid worker for the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, was kidnapped um, in Dadaab, uh, and basically the, uh, he, he then complained he went to court and said, oh, you need to compensate me because uh, post-traumatic stress and I can no longer work. My life wow. is destroyed. Uh, and he won his case. Uh, and that's not the interesting point about this was the argument of the court, which was entirely based on the way that uh, security professionals, so the Norwegian Refugee Council security manager and the local ones and so on, the way that they had mishandled security. And it was interesting on on several. So and so, there's no state here, right? He agreed. There's no state involved in this. It's about um, 
professional network and the way that they judge what uh, appropriate security provision would have been uh, in this situation. And then there were interesting sort of sub points to that because it was extremely hierarchical. So what was said in Oslo, so the British security manager of the Norwegian Refugee Council, uh, he should have been on top. And one of the things that was really mismanagement from uh, the court's point of view was that the locals had done things without consulting him. It so turned out he hadn't answered his phone as well, but never mind. They should still have consulted and they should have consulted more intensely with people in the capital uh, and so forth locally, like the regional security managers. So there's a whole hierarchy of this network at work. So it's not like a flat thing where everyone is equal or something like that. But the point being in terms of the question of how the ad hoc tendency disappears. So this is a really formal case where you make an argument about what appropriate security is. And there's no sort of sense that somehow uh, a public, like a clearly public state thing would have had to be involved. It was all about the security professionals and their network. All right. Thanks, Anna, for this. Um, If if that's all right with you, I would like to go back to what you mentioned earlier as, you know, your preferred sets of methods. And you talked a lot about ethnography. And <clears throat> I want to ask about an article that appeared in International Studies Perspectives in 2015 that was entitled Ethnographic Contributions to Method Development, Strong Objectivity in Security Studies. And I found that article really, really interesting. And I wanted to know if you could talk a bit more about what you meant by strong objectivity and perhaps then discuss the conceptual linkages between ethnographic methods and that strong objectivity or objectivity as practice, as you write in your own words. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Thanks, Stephanie. So that's, of course, also quite important. So as often... Um, when I wrote this, one of the reasons was that I was pretty annoyed with the way that um, that ethnographic or my kind of work basically was uh, inferior to uh, people who were supposedly doing really, really objective work, whereas ours or right. mine, say I shouldn't include anyone, but my kind of work was only uh, uh, was only subjective and only limited, very limited. And so there was this sort of underlying idea that, you know, um, maybe it was interesting for very local things, but there was something superior elsewhere to be done differently. Uh, and, um, and of course the term strong objectivity was around. Originally it wasn't called that at all, it was called something else, but I thought that was quite helpful because it really put the emphasis uh, on the fact that objectivity is a very, complicated practice Uh, and the basis of the argument uh, that I'm making of course is that you know the consciousness of the complications of uh, positionality are actually superior to pretending that you can somehow get rid of them and I don't think there's any solution to this like there's no miracle that will uh, remove uh, issues of positionality from research and eliminate their presence. You can't, that, that they don't exist. Uh, but so the question becomes how you handle them and how you work with them uh, and how you turn them into um, something uh, more positive. Um, and that's what that article is about, uh, different ways of doing that and the possibility of uh, relying basically of making alliances uh, with 
the research, if you like, to accept that uh, you have a position and so do they. And you can't really merge with them and become them just as they can't become you and you have different interests, different languages and so on. But you can sort of work with them rather than sort of trying to uh, objectify them somehow from uh, a place uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, so uh, that's what I'm uh, very interested in. And I think... I think there would, I said this before, I think there, would, there are different ways of doing this. Uh, and I, I suppose that a lot of the time when we work, we work in ways of life to work because that comes easiest to us or something like that. Uh, and so for me, it was never really an option to do it historically. But I think, of course, we can. I think Anne-Laura Stoller, for example, is an example of that. Or in IR, Tarek Bakawi or something like that. But, you know, people who actually work with the archives uh, and pull things uh, out of uh, archives uh, and do uh, not ethnographic work, but strong objectivity work where you make the concepts. You sort of allow the thing you're studying to inform the way you're thinking and the, uh, and the theories you're working with and so on. That wasn't my choice. Uh, so my choice has always been because it's easier for me to um, uh, to basically do ethnographic-like work and talk to people and look at images and look at the things that are around them and so on. Right, yeah, there is still a, a bias in, in social sciences and IR against uh, ethnographic works as some kind of ways that your, your work might lose some scientificity to it. It's very interesting to talk about those things. Um, so if I stay with the same piece and if I radicalize it <laughs> you uh, you know I've worked with and with ethnographers and on ethnography and, and, and you know anthropology as well and you do talk in your piece about you know questions of power and how this might inform issue uh, issues of research positionality and reflexivity but if I put myself if I could put myself in the shoes of say an anthropologist um, some of them might point out that Problems of, for example, unequal power relations along class or racial lines might be a little absent throughout your text. And so you can completely tell me I'm wrong and then tell me where it is or discuss this. And if it is fairly absent, if I read this correctly, why is it so? Is it perhaps that it's how CSS uh, does things at this point? Is it something that CSS could improve on? What do you think about those issues? So I, I think there's, um, I think, of course, you're right that it, it's not, I have never written explicitly about race or about gender or something like that. Right. So in that sense, it's it's clearly an absence, right? Okay. Uh, but on the other hand, I really think that uh, when I talk about positionality, that's in there. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons, uh, so so let's let's put it like this. I think that I hope that people, when they read positionality, they actually think, race, uh, gender, uh, situatedness, broadly speaking, into this, like class. Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's entirely absent. I, I really think that a lot of things I've written are about that, although they don't say that. Uh, and that 
also has something to do, like one of the reasons why I don't keep saying race, gender, class, race, gender, class, uh, intersectionality, etc., is that I'm very much of the persuasion that just as most other things, these things uh, merit respect and attention. So if one wants to write about race and gender uh, and class, I'm, I'm actually class, well, all of them are, yeah, no. I should, sorry, skip that. If what, But if one wants to do work on, the, um, on race, gender, and class, I think it's very important to do so seriously uh, and to actually engage seriously and show uh, how it's at work. And I haven't done it. I could have done, and sometimes I think I should have done. Um, I've encouraged a lot of other people to do, so I've opened space for it. I've published people who do it. For example, Amanda Chisholm's work on commercial security. Mm-hmm where I published uh, Andrea Schneider and Joachim and so on in my series on the commercial security. Um, so, you know, on one level, you're completely right. On the other hand, I feel like, yeah, no one can do everything. I didn't do this one. Uh, and it's a question, of course, maybe I should have a course all kind of similar. Uh, so, um, so that's one thing. And then there's another thing I'd like to add as a footnote to that. Um, I'm a little bit... Um, I, I think reflexivity about positionality is really important. But one of the things that I I don't like, I, I really want people to work on issues of gender and race and class, but I don't like it when it becomes a sort of uh, navel-gazing on ourselves or on myself. I don't right. see the benefit of that, actually. I don't think it's particularly interesting. So one of my favorite organizational theory scholars is someone called Barbara Chanyavska, and she's written quite a lot of things on how to do ethnographies and organizations and so on. Uh, and she she makes this strong point about how she thinks that what distinguishes uh, ethnographic work from, say, consultancy or something like that, or ethnographic theorizing, really is yeah. the reflective side of it. But then she also goes along with Latour and the rest, and so would I actually, in saying that that part of it really is for more for like internal consumption uh, and maybe shouldn't occupy so much space uh, in the work uh, that we do towards the outside. So, uh, So it's for academic workshops or for uh, you know, the way when we think about how we work, our methods and so on, that ultimately very few people are interested in reading that. Uh, but that are, of course, very important for academic work uh, and also for the, redefining its categories, for redefining what it can see and so on. Um, but, um, and that's maybe one of the reasons why things aren't more strongly there, like why I don't keep saying. So those two things, on the one hand, I really think it's important to do it well. Uh, yeah. And since I've never focused on it, I don't yeah. keep mentioning. And and the other thing, this thing about I, I'm a bit concerned about the way things become sort of extremely personal. Like I don't see the benefit of me saying, oh, uh, you know, I'm a white yeah. person, or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, thank you. Um, so maybe if we can take a step back from methodology for a minute and um, just uh, hit up another one of the interesting contributions from your work over the last few years. Uh, one of the pieces that I really appreciated was your 2016 piece in Environment and Planning D about the politics of whitelisting and commercial security. So 
just for listeners at home, commercial whitelists are lists of firms that have signed up to certain standards. So Anna, I, I want to invite you in a minute to say why that topic stood out to you as worthy of study in a moment. But um, just to sort of underline this, like the, the whitelists are pretty innocuous things, right? They don't necessarily jump off the page as being very political. But in this piece, you seem quite comfortable describing them almost in like conspiratorial terms. So while the the, the artifacts themselves, right, the whitelist themselves, uh, in this instance, um, might be kind of like hidden in plain sight, you seem to be saying that, that, that what what they hide is really more their stakes. And as you say this, I was thinking about people like Martin Konings, and he's got some work recently from Political Economy where he talks about money as a con- kind of confessional object. You know, again, the the, the, the the operation or the dynamic, the symbol doesn't tell you that much about the dynamic really until you sort of look at the social dynamics surrounding it. So um, this is fascinating to me. So what are the hidden stakes then of a world of whitelisted security firms, whitelisted commercial security firms. What are we being invited to see? And what is it that we're being invited to overlook, so to speak? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So thanks a lot because I, I actually, that article was fun writing and it sort of captures one side of this that we haven't talked about at all. So I've sort of been interested in how to regulate and not really, not like I thought I should be regulating things, but because when you work on something, people pull you into the discussions. And so it got me thinking about, you know, if I'm critical about the way that commercial security works and makes security, how could we go about this? And, you know, for the longest time, and actually still today, the main way of reacting to the difficulties of regulating is to go into various sort of best practices, code of conduct, and so on that don't have much uh, teeth. But on the other hand, it's much better than nothing because you can actually go and hold people accountable. You can say, oh, you signed up to this. Why didn't you do it? So they, you said they look innocuous. I actually think they look very positive like to most people. It's like, great, finally we're doing something about this, so we have something to go by. And there's a whole forest of this in commercial security. There are hundreds of um, different kinds of codes, best practices, uh, standards, and so on. Now, um, the, the interesting thing about what this was doing, and I, I think it's not hidden from you at all. So it's a very sort of positive, sorry, just to finish up. It's a very positive thing for most people, the fact that you have these, what I call whitelists. And it's, again, it's a term that someone I was interviewing gave to me. I didn't sort of, I didn't really, I was desperate. I thought there would be blacklists because before I started working on this, people had told me about the blacklist. And then I right. started asking about them and wanted to tell me about the blacklist. So you know, here we are, whitelist. Uh, someone eventually said, we don't really do blacklist. We can do this because legally and blah, blah, blah. But uh, we actually, you could think of the lists we have these companies as whitelists. So that's how I came to that. Um, now, the, you say I talked about it as in conspiratorial terms, but not really. I sort of show the legal work that they're doing, mm-hmm. the way that they're, the whitelists are really important in staking out the space. So it was for a geography journal, but I actually, legal space, of course, jurisdiction is really important in law, but also specific laws and also special kind of expertise. So the whitelists actually do political work. And that's, there's nothing conspiratorial. That's precisely what you mentioned. Why you I, I noticed that word conspiracy cropped up three or four times in that piece. And you were kind of almost like trying to 
um, separate uh, a certain space for yourself to kind of talk about it. I, I, I think you were using the term almost to sort of suggest there were power stakes um, in the way these things operated. And, and maybe that sort of echoes your earlier comments about Latour, um, that these aren't just simple, you know, networks of uh, actors and, and objects. Uh, you know, there are there's actual power relations at stake in these things. Yeah, no, they're absolutely, and I think it's really important to um, to problematize them. But I, yeah, sorry. Now, of course, I've forgotten how I use conspiratorial in that work. Maybe it was when <laughs> no I just read Joe Ging and he was so interested in it. Yeah. But the the point, the way I think of it is very much like they do work, and we see it, but we don't problematize it. Yes, I think that's like right. It just yeah. seems good, and we sort of fall into that. And I think it's very important. Like most political work, we need to problematize. Like not necessarily saying it's only bad. Mm-hmm. I don't think the whiteness are only bad, mm-hmm. uh, but in the sense that it's really important to get that the politics that they're doing uh so i don't really i, I don't see it as a sort of hidden conspiracy of it's course. quite it's quite yeah. the opposite it's out there in the open and you know i was interviewing the head of the bae uh, uh, ethics code for this and stuff like that and he was quite happy talking to me and uh, uh actually reread the quotes i was using from him and so on so i think the uh-huh. the whole um I don't, I, I don't see this as being conspiratorial uh-huh. at all, but I think it's an, one of these many cases that uh, I find interesting generally where a misrecognition of um, the political nature of something that seems good um, uh, is, you know, is anchored in a sort of, not, not in the fact that we can't see it or that it's hidden. Like, I don't think the stakes here are particularly hidden at all. But in the fact that we sort of we just look at one side, it's like if you think of a balance sheet or something, you just look at one side of the balance sheet and you don't care about the other side. And obviously that's going to become very skewed. So I think it's very important to get that the dynamics through which something like a whitelist works. So that's part of it. And part of it was that I was actually one of the first time I started engaging with the effective side of uh, mm. basically uh, technologies of governance and the importance of the, of effect in it. So I have uh, mm. a little part of this uh, drawing um, on the, the way that lists actually always uh, evoke potential and have a sort of the imagination of what you can do with lists. And the whole article is set up around uh, Umberto Eco's fantastic books on how lists work, right? Uh, and so um, it, it was also an idea of working with uh, a specific kind of uh, governance technology uh, in this piece and the role of uh, something like aesthetics and effect in making politics uh, in its own right. And this was one of the sort of first times that I actually tried that out a little bit, sort of thinking about it and working with it. So gotcha. both of those things made me think, like both the sort of practical side of it's actually really important to see the... Um, the limits, uh, as well as you know, what the positive side of having all these codes and so on. What what else does it do? And to recognize that it's really like you know, setting legal space, and legal norms, and uh, uh, and expertise, authority, law. It's really important, actually, politically, uh, not only in this area but in others. So yeah, and then the other side. So the theoretical side of actually getting into 
thinking about the effect and imagination in mm-hmm. All right. So, Anna, before uh, we wrap this up, we just have a, a couple more questions. Um, actually, you did mention uh, this aspect at the very beginning of, of this podcast is, uh, is the, the part of art and aesthetic aspect of, of you know, STAIR and, and how science, technology and art may actually be worked together and how, you know, they might interact together. And I was wondering if you could expand a bit on the importance of bringing more attention to this aesthetic uh, aspect of it within these debates and in the context of, of course, of your own uh, recent work. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, I think there's been a sort of close link between uh, work in uh, science and technology studies and also, especially in the feminist part. So going back to Haraway and so on. So uh, bringing in uh, Odkin and alliances with different kinds of drawers, including art and Latour, of course, built a master uh, in uh, whatever science, technology and art. Uh, so I think it, it sort of comes quite logically when you think about, when you begin thinking about the work, um, uh, material work and uh, the work of uh, technologies generally, you, I think you tend to be led that way or something like that. Uh, now, and so I think I've just basically followed the logical path or something like that. I could also put it differently in terms of, sort of critical thinking that I think we've spent a lot of time uh, that, that there are two big traditions, and one of them focuses more on the aesthetic and the affective, and the other one more on the sociological. And they've always been there, and very strongly so in the Frankfurt School. But uh, I think it goes back to at least Kant. Um, so it's sort of a classical way of thinking, and I've taken more and more interest in it for um, uh, the simple reason that I've taken, become interested. So I followed the general path, but also in terms of the, the way that communication around security works. And if you're interested in how security is made, of course, that's very crucial. Um, mediation has become ever more central to it. Uh, and of and so besides the fact that marketing, of course, always involves images and so on, uh, and as place on the aesthetic and the effective very strongly. So it, that's not a revolution. But when you then add to the fact that uh, mediated communication, digitally mediated communication works very strongly through uh images and the effective, then you're brought there uh, even more strongly. So I sort of um, followed the companies in there uh, and uh, been interesting. I thought, I think I wrote my first piece on advertising really, really long ago. I was in 2000, uh, whatever, early days, uh, 2005 or something like that, the first time I started thinking. So it's been in the, in the background, but I didn't really, for obvious reasons, do much with it. Now I've actually started working with it. Uh, and I think more people should do that because I think what I just said about the companies and I followed them as a, it's true for politics more generally. So I think more people should pay attention to uh, those sides. Now, that, of course, means two things, essentially, I think, in terms of how we think about the role of um, uh, of art and aesthetics. And one is that uh, it requires uh, thinking about the mundane side of this or 
like you know companies are for most people held up as marketing images and so on is anti-aesthetic or something like that and i think in ir and also in stair there's been a tendency to uh, take an interest a lot in the art side with a more um a more conventional art point of view um uh, which I think is somewhat paradoxical because, of course, art itself has become ever more interested in the mundane and the found and the ready-made and the digital and the combination of unlikely things and so on. So somehow we've sort of tagged on to the fact that maybe we should care a little bit about aesthetics, but we've done so tag tagging on to authoritative, uh, an image of authoritative art that really isn't uh, authoritative anymore uh, in the field of art itself. So, so I think sort of moving it in, accepting that all kinds of processes that are not artistic in any kind of way uh, have an a, a art aesthetic and effective quality to them, and that really merits study. Um, is uh, a step that I'm not saying I'm, I think a lot of people have started to go that way, but we need to do much, much more work on that. And it's a very important part of politics, and therefore something to be done. And, and then, the, so that's the first thing. And the other thing I think is about learning from, uh, from art. So if, if you take an interest in that, then I think there's an area where, um, or people have been working with aesthetic and effective elements for a long time and thinking about them and so on, that's art itself. So I think in terms of building alliances and cross, across drawers and so on, it's, it imposes itself. So, and I've, I've been trying to do a little bit of that as well uh, in the more recent things that I'm doing. Well, Anna, I'm just going to jump in here with our last question for you today. But uh, before we do that, I just want to, again, on behalf of Stephanie and myself, uh, thank you for, for joining us uh, today for this uh, inaugural uh, joint episode, uh, joint production between the, the stair section and the fully automated podcast. Um, so you have uh, potentially uh, younger scholars, PhD students listening to this interview who, who work in uh, the areas of international political sociology, science, technology, and art and international relations, uh, or perhaps even political economy. Um, any tips for them? You know, what advice would you be giving to people trying to work um, sort of uh, in, the, in the same path as yourself, you know, at the intersection of all these interesting ideas? And um, do you have a sense yourself of what the hot research topics might be at this intersection moving forward? Um, would you like to comment on where you see the study of science, technology and art going next for IR theory? Uh, yeah, sure. So, so I actually think, like, in terms of advice, I think it's really hard to give advice to people generally. Uh, mm -hmm. But they don't um, listen to it. No, and also, <laughs> you know, for you, uh, or something like that. But yeah. uh, on average, I, I quite like uh, Donna Haraway's take on things, which is very much. Uh, she keeps insisting for gender studies, and maybe I shouldn't only say Donna Haraway, but gender yeah. studies generally, who sort of always worked from the insistence on the fact that you're really stronger than you think you are. Mm. Uh, I think there's um, an amazing tendency to conservatism uh, among graduates, not everyone, of course, etc. people are different, but among graduate students um, because of a very justified worry of um, uh, the pr career prospects and, you know, possibility of getting a job and so on. And I think, um, 
I think actually it's less like my kind of work uh, is uh, well less marginal, but also more there. There are more people than uh, is often recognized, and I think of course the stair is an example of that, and so is IPS, and so are the networks surrounding that, including yours. Uh, so. Um, I think realizing that and being less afraid of working in this area is like the over the, the strongest advice that I have. Like I think people really, uh, yeah, should. That's of course a terrible thing to say, but that's true. So that's what I think. Um, so this willingness to acknowledge uh, that you don't actually have to submit, uh, but you can actually do quite a lot of things uh, and it can mm. actually work. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then um, the second thing related to that is I, I've always been a, from actually very, very much from the beginning. I don't really, I think it's important that people develop their own research topics and do mm. like take pleasure in doing things on their own. So not, I always find it very problematic and very sort of close to think only in terms of applying what other people thought. Uh, and working with that. Uh, and of course, that's the prevailing uh, mode for a lot of people. And I, I'd like to um, get away from the, um, mm. uh, the sort of gregarian spirit of uh, sticking inside things. Uh, and that, of course, if you think like that, and I think it's that's really important because if you talk about imagining politics differently or, you know, doing things, uh, developing knowledge, of course, that's what it goes through. Um, takes uh, working independently and developing your own topics. And that, of course, means that it makes no sense whatsoever to sit and try to say, oh, I really think that, you know, this sub-project of mine uh, is what you should be developing or, you know, this pet um, focus of my research uh, mm. is uh, where you should be heading. So I don't, I don't really, uh, I actually, I'm quite unwilling uh, to sit and sort of point uh, uh, point people to specific research topics rather I'd like people to Fair work enough. on their own people work in very different ways and we need that I'm actually in favor right. of the multiplicity uh, of ways of working and thinking um, so uh, that's the second thing I want to say uh, on that okay thanks thank you really this is great thank you um, really appreciate it yep likewise all right. So have a very nice evening. I'll send it to me before I forget again. I right. feel like I've said it two times. Take care. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.